I'm just stupid. That's my problem. Gentlemen, let's broaden our minds. Are they in the proper approach pattern for today? Welcome to Dispatch Ajax. I am Jake. I'm Skip. That's him. Today we're going to talk about the wild world of fan films. Where they come from, what they do to you, how you get them, <laughs> how to avoid them. Uh, dirty toilet seat. <laughs> That's not true. It was actually a tractor that he was riding on. That's what it was. Exactly. But as you all know... Fan films are everywhere. They used to just kind of be kind of your few major franchises you really would see f fan films of, mostly like um, Star Wars, Star Trek, mm -hmm. you know, post-70s, 80s, into the 90s. But nowadays, you get fan films and everything. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. In fact, you get more fan films currently than you've probably ever gotten. I had a fun statistic. Burp, burp, burp. A New York Times analysis of nearly 150 fan films on YouTube with at least 100,000 views found that more than 75% were uploaded in the six years since the debut of the trailer for Force Awakens. Mm. Which means just like in the past 10 years. Mm -hmm. That'd be right. Fan films have exploded all over society's chest. <laughs> You know, in that vein, I did see a um, a porn parody of a really obscure comic book, the Superman versus Spider-Man crossover comic. You saw a porn parody of that? Like a really high-budgeted one. Oh, weird. Although that is one thing I wanted to get into. Hey, what makes a fan film? You would think that it's pretty easy to denote, like... You know, a film made by fans. But does a porn parody, does that count as a fan film? I guess that depends on the intent. If the person is doing it in sincere homage to the subject matter and just doing it to a different backdrop, then yeah, I don't see why it couldn't be. All right. Interesting. I guess I don't really have a one way or the other, but that does seem to be a hot button issue. There's a lot of people that say, you know, like, if you're paying someone to do a fan film, it's not a fan film at that point, that it has to be pro bono. If there's a certain amount of money spent, if something is being made for 200 bucks, yeah, obviously it's a shoestring fan film. But if something is being made for a million dollars, is that still a fan film? Well, I mean, it's not made by the studio. I think one of the biggest red lines that have been drawn over the last few years is it's are you profiting off of it? Yes, which is one of the things that at least Disney and Star Wars Land have put that as their red line. Uh, ba -ba -ba -ba. So Disney asked that to be clearly marked, not raise money through crowdfunding, omitting copyrighted media like 
songs, for instance, and not profit from ticket sales or online advertisements, then they allow it to be a fan film and they won't go after you. At least Disney doesn't seem to discriminate between fan films made by professionals and those made by amateurs, as long as they follow the rules. But you get into gray lines, you know, essentially, if you make a fan film, then that's an automatic loss for anybody making that film. But if you make that film and then that drives YouTube subscribers and then that attracts sponsors and then that greases the wheel theoretically for you to get in and open doors to quote unquote legitimate film and television making, mm-hmm. I guess that's okay. But I think that's one thing that has become quite prevalent, at least the idea of fan film to mainstream production. It's not necessarily a one-to-one that a lot of times that doesn't happen, that you make fan films and then break out big and you get your own Marvel movie or you get to direct the latest Jurassic Park. But I think that is the idea for a lot of people. You know, as movie making has become more independent and more viable in that form, along with the rise of a variety of ubiquitous love franchises and the expansion of cosplay culture, I think fan films have become a go-to for people getting their work out there. I think that's something that's really changed, especially in the past 10, 15 years. A lot of times you have stunt workers or action choreographers, mm. you know, they will utilize fan films, you know, make a, a Dragon Ball Z thing or a, a Naruto or taking those elements, just slightly tweaking them to kind of show their own filmmaking, not only as, as performers, but as costumers, editors, directors, the whole kitten caboodle, which I think is, is something that's really come to the forefront on how we view fan films as more than just a vehicle for love, because that's really what they are. I think that love can definitely overtake budget constraints. Fear. No. Uh, Donnie Darko, Patrick Swayze. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Love definitely helps you to get child pornography and keep it in your basement. Love of children. The deepest love of children, one might say. <laughs> but I think it supersedes talent, supersedes expertise. Really putting your heart and soul into a project can give it a life that a lot of bland studio efforts, which are more about getting butts in seats, that is not someone who is dedicating years of their lives to putting something that they truly love on screen, which I think is the heart of fan films. I mean, they've been going on since, not necessarily the beginning of film, but the earliest known fan film is the Anderson Our Gang, which produced in 1926, shot in South Carolina, based on the Our Gang film series. Hmm. Since then, as filmmaking has become more prevalent and easier to make, you've had a teenage Hugh Hefner get involved. You had Andy Warhol produce his Batman Dracula movie. Oh, yeah. And I think about the 70s. Is, is really when it started taking off. That's when you get both Star Trek and Star Wars, which really dominate the idea of fan films for decades to come. Your first big fan film that got people's brains a-chugging, that would be the 1997 short Troops, which is about stormtroopers based in the Star Wars universe and is based <laughs> off of the show Cops, which is very oh, yeah. popular in the 90s. I remember that one. Yeah. That became something that you'd see traded at Comic-Cons and whatnot, mm-hmm. and early internet, young YouTube became a high for that. And then you had a lot of other films, you know, fanfilms.net, 
and theforce.net. Those are places where fan films just sprouted. Mm-hmm. And I think especially like the hubbub and fervor around episode one and the prequels that really got people going. And it was then about 2003. That's when you get Sandy Cholera's Batman Dead End. Yes. Which premiered at the 2003 San Diego Comic-Con. Yeah. I had a burned DVD of that. Yeah. And then that went on to do tons of views on the YouTubes. Yes, it did. Yeah. And pretty solid, too. Yeah. I'm going to cover a little bit more stuff, then we'll circle back around. But that was another key moment in the evolution of fan films. I think for that one, it was less about people in their quote-unquote basement making movies while mom isn't around. This one felt like a high production value using some named actors and really trying to make a film that will push the boundaries of fan film and studio quality production and maybe open a door into the greater film industry. Plus, it was just, I mean, it's cool as hell at the time. And it, it served one of the greatest features of fan films, you know, the idea that you can mash up different properties together. Back then, that was the only way that was ever going to happen. Yeah. I mean, really, that kind of hits on one of the key ideas of what fan films and fan culture are about. Taking these properties that are so beloved, but that are restricted by corporations. So in traditional narrative culture, you had characters like uh, a Robin Hood or a a Pecos Bill or a Brer Rabbit. And these belong to the folkdom and no one had rights necessarily after a certain period of time of you know, Sherlock Holmes appearing in a, in a story. Or, you know, if you had Sherlock Holmes and Robin Hood, that's fine. But once certain things came to be legally with copyright holders and media conglomerates, things, you couldn't have Captain Kirk meet Chewbacca. You couldn't have Xena the Warrior Princess meet uh, Mully and Skulder. Uh, Mully and Skulder? That's a weird one. Scully and Mulder. That's a... Uh, Bizarro <laughs> universe. Bizarro X-Files. Mm-hmm. The Bizarro Files. The Y-Files. But in current culture, we don't have those Robin Hood elements. We have Batman. We have Spider-Man, Captain Kirk, Han Solo. But it's hard for people to tell stories and make like an oral history of those because we get slapped with copyrights. You get sued. But fans have a tendency to reject the idea of definitive versions being produced, authorized, and regulated by a media conglomerate. They want to envision these characters in these worlds in their own way and participate in building those cultural myths, which I think is why fan films resonate so much. Oftentimes, you don't get fan films that, you know, make something whole cloth that want to shun what's been made, destroy universes. They want to build on what they love. Maybe they want to take things and turn them slightly, you know, maybe give a a darker edge or a grittier edge or a more adult edge or a more fun edge. It kind of runs the gamut, but they don't make films to hate on. They love the freedom to tell their stories of the things they love in ways that make it more meaningful for them. Mm -hmm. Fans take these things they love and they want to be a part of creating stuff that's so intrinsically important to not only their love, but culture as a whole, which has created a natural bristling between fans and their corporate overlords. It's the difference of seeing things, you know, as cultural products, especially in the past, 
I'd say 20, 25 years, a media revolution, you know, with the advent of digital cinema, high quality production materials being available, CGI, Blender just being out there and you can use. You can make a movie that looks and sounds almost or even better than a lot of Hollywood productions. And so that gives a freedom and an ability that hasn't ever been at least as readily accessible as it is now, but that and the ability to distribute it everywhere immediately, something that the internet, YouTube, your Vimeos allowed for and didn't exist, say, in 1976. That's really changed the landscape, but it's probably made it even more dire isn't the right word, but more fraught with the possibility of legal problems. You know, it, it's things like Star Wars kind of loves the uh, participatory culture and they kind of want to stoke that, letting these grassroots approaches build the Star Wars universe itself. In fact, you have Obi-Wan Kenobi, the new Kenobi show is kind of loosely based off of some Obi-Wan Kenobi fan films that came out. You see a lot of elements that are quite similar. Star Wars kind of like, oh, you know, we, we like that. You're allowed to spread that around. It wasn't always that case because Lucasfilm has been one of the more aggressive corporate groups trying to halt fan culture mm. and production. As early as 1981, Lucasfilm had issued legal notices and warnings to fan publishing zines. A lot of these contained some... We'll say racy stories, <laughs> which they... Kind way to put it. Yeah. Uh, these more mature stories were a little antithetical to the, the, the PG Star Wars that they wanted to have out there. And so they said if, if it wasn't PG, you weren't allowed to make it or put it out. And of course, Star Wars and Lucasfilm aren't the only people who have had DMCA notices to fan films or fan productions. Not the only ones like tried to enforce that. And I think Skip will definitely get into a, a key story as far as that goes. Boy, howdy. <laughs> but it's one of those things where as contemporary pop culture has been absorbing aspects of fan culture, especially as comic book films have begun to dominate the cineplex. That relationship between what's allowed, what isn't, has just become much more fraught, you know, especially with media savvy consumers who have access to so many things. Well, of course, you have access to fan filmmaking tools as well. Mm -hmm. Now, there are entire professional productions shot on iPhones and fan films have never been more accessible than they are right now. Editing software is more accessible. Everything's digital. Mm -hmm. uh, you can the ability for people to express themselves this way has increased exponentially. Oh, 100%. And whether that is going to lead us to a new revolution, fan films marrying with their corporate entities, kind of allowing the playfulness to continue on, or if there's going to be more of a collision between those two warring sections of economic and legal culture that encourages monopoly power over culture mythologies which is kind of what this is all about. Taking that power back for yourself and for all the people who love what you love. Mm -hmm. It's about democratizing fandom, not being beholden to the carrot that the corporation who owns the IP is dangling in front of you, but being able to express pure, unadulterated fandom in a reverential homage mm -hmm. and sort of taking back their own power to love the thing that they love without having to pay for it. Well, I mean, they'd still pay for it, but ha not having to pay the giant faceless corporation that owns it. Yeah, that owns almost everything we love and hold dear. Mm -hmm. And I will get into a little bit about what the future holds in regard to if we're going to see 
uh, embrace of fan films, or if it's going to be a, if they're going to see that light you know, coming down the tracks, we'll uh, I'll, we'll get into that a little bit too. <laughs> it's a doozy. Yeah, I think before we warp speed into that bucket of worms. During my research for this, I watched some fan films, and I, I just wanted to talk about a few of them and why I think they stand out. I think first one that we can both discuss is Batman Dead End mm-hmm. from 2003. This is an eight-minute Batman short that cost about $30,000 to make. It was made by Sandy Cholera, and as the esteemed arbiter of knowledge on all pop culture... Director Kevin Smith said at the time, it's possibly the truest, best Batman movie ever made. (laughs) Not necessarily wrong, especially in 2003. Um, Well, I mean... I think he means in the way that Batman is represented, not necessarily the crazy bad shit nuts things that happen. (laughs) Yes, because that's what he's talking about. Because what happens in that film is Batman is chasing the Joker and Mm. who's played by Star Trek's Walter Koenig's son. Oh, that's Walter Koenig's son? Yep. I didn't know that. Um, Yeah. I just knew him as Boner from Growing Pains. Yeah, that's Walter Koenig's kid. Oh, huh. You learn something new every day, folks. It's going to come full circle. (laughs) I think what made it stand out, at least for me, is that it's a collection of mid-budget glorious depictions of comic panels come to life. There's a slickness to the style while stressing the competent mastery of graphic storytelling in it. Lots of little elements executed deftly. The crinkle of leather as he pulls the gloves on his knuckles. All the whites of Batman's eyes, something that any hardcore comic fan always points to. Mm. But you don't ever see in movies because you can't have someone just blind out there. Well, it's you can do it like Spider-Man. I don't know why they couldn't just do it. Uh, you know? yeah. Nowadays, well, you they can. did it in this movie. Yeah, they did it in this. Exactly. The slow lift up of the cape on the mm-hmm. puddle, like a ghoul arising from the grave. It's a very cool and very slick production that didn't look amateurish. Even after he's punching Joker Boner... Joker Boner gets pulled away by a xenomorph from the Alien franchise, (laughs) who then is quickly killed by a predator. Batman (laughs) then has to fight said predator. Mm -hmm. This Um, all tracks. Yeah. (laughs) I think it's also one of the things that made it so special is that it gives a sandbox for ideas and thoughts to just run free because you can't have Batman fighting an alien. It's just never going to happen in the way that the way corporate entities own properties. But you can make Batman pull out his batarangs and fight a predator and it can be cool as hell. Again, with every fan film, there are going to be things you love and don't love about it, you know? I mean, essentially, he's killing a predator here with his batarangs. Um, eh, not really what Batman's going to do. But, no, you know, you take the bad with the good. <laughs> or the bat with the good, as it were. Ah, there we go. So this allowed Cholera to then go on to make a uh, World's Finest film that he did, I think, the year after this. Mm-hmm. Which is, of course, Bats and Soups together. But it didn't necessarily open the door to Hollywood at large. He didn't like, you know, you can't open his IMDb profile and see all of these things he's been paid to write and direct, at least that have been produced, per se. But that's not the way with all of these. 
So uh, I also watched the 2010 Mortal Kombat Rebirth. Um, mm. Which I don't know if you know what this is, but this is a a version of the Mortal Kombat video game done in live action. Mm-hmm. You have Michael J. White. You have Seven of Nine. Yeah. Yeah. The idea was let's do Mortal Kombat kind of set in a realistic world. Let's kind of take out the supernatural, the sorcerers, the gods, and try to figure out a way to tell these stories of this Mortal Kombat tournament and these bizarre martial arts characters, but a more realistic tone. Yeah, it's more grounded. It's much more grounded. And they highlighted people that loved the franchise and wanted to focus on interesting storytelling and good martial arts being depicted on screen. And it did well enough. I mean, whether the film was made and supposedly it was going to be sent to New Line so they could possibly maybe buy it and produce it. But somehow it got leaked onto YouTube, mm. became a fan sensation. People loved it. So, of course, they didn't make it. <laughs> uh Yes and no. The rights holders to Mortal Kombat and the studio, they were kind of like, oh, we see that this is doing well. We don't necessarily like what you did here, but we do kind of like some of the elements. So they did allow it to be made. Take that kind of as a... uh, Like a template? Yeah, Mm -hmm. there you go. And a pilot. And then they, they made a series of shorts that they then made two seasons of with a possible third season in the works but I don't think that's ever going to happen. They ended up reworking some of things, but it did serve as a pipeline from fan ideas and production to actual studio involvement, getting money from them, being able to make it somewhat the way they wanted their own version. Of course, they didn't get behind it as much as they did a Mortal Kombat movie that came out a couple years ago at this point. Was it 2020? I thought it was last year, but I, maybe, was it, maybe it was 2020. I don't know. 2020, 2021, what is time? Whatever. Who cares? It sucked anyway. Yeah, that sucked. And if you have seen Mortal Kombat Rebirth and what they did with that, you know, some of the actors there, their versions of the characters, they're honestly so much better. Mm-hmm. Why don't you just do that? Spite. Yeah. You know, maybe it's spite. If it's not mine, damn it. And it will never be that way. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of incidents in Star Trek I'm going to get to where they do that, where it's, I'm pretty sure, out of spite. Bah. Mm-hmm. Ah, well. I'm kind of doing this so you can like, hey, what are some cool fan films to go out there and go see? And none of the films I'm going to give to you suck. These are all good films, at least on some level. There's the Dragon Ball Z Light of Hope, which came out in 2014. The, first, the original was a 15-minute short done by Robot Underdog. Mm-mm. Later on the series, I think Donnie and Rita McMillan do it, but the original was a $50,000 production, and it tells the story of post-Goku's death. You have Gohan and Trunks, and he's like trying to train Trunks, and you have the androids. I mean, if anybody's into Dragon Ball Z, you know what I'm talking about. To everyone else, they're like, what the f*** are you talking about? But, you know, uh, Dragon Ball Z, it's flying martial artists from space, aliens. I think of it kind of um, Superman, but with martial arts, in a way. Kind of. Kind uh, of. If you've never really watched Dragon Ball Z, and I really hope that the fan film followed this pattern, every episode involves the formula... Two people facing off across a field of some sort, looking angry and a little shocked and reacting, and then both jumping up in the air at the same time, switching places when they land, and then both looking surprised that the other did that. 
and then that goes on for 40 minutes, <laughs> and then the next episode starts. You know why this is a fan film? Because of course they do that. <laughs> of course they do that. Because it's a fan film. They are in love with what they saw and what they liked most about it. One thing that separates this from the cartoon or the manga is that this is much darker version. The androids are literally like killing people. As you see, just normal humans running for their lives and getting mown down, which is one thing you'll see again and again in a lot of fan films, kind of adultification of a lot of what they grew up on. But as they got older, they wanted to see like, let's let's do a darker, grittier version, which can be good. It's not innately Zack Snydery bad, mm -hmm. but it is a trope in a lot of the fan films. This did lead up to a series of episodes that they kind of expanded out. I only watched the pilot because I had to watch a lot of these fan films. So, you know, there's only so much time. Another one would be Star Wars Dolph Maul Apprentice from 2016. This is an 18-minute feature directed by Sean Boo, made in Germany. <laughs> He's my boo. <laughs> he's, uh, he came directly from the Dragon Ball Z universe. The He's boo. He's a big, you know, oh. pink. Uh, no, he's not at all. Damn. But this is a $25,000 produced feature that it focuses on Darth Maul, obviously. Mm-hmm. And is much cooler than, you know, the six minutes of Darth Maul that you get in the prequel. I mean, just by default, it's cooler. It is cooler. This also stands out as... A lot of people have said the best lightsaber fighting in all of Star Wars fan films. Hmm. Uh, essentially, Darth Maul takes on a bunch of Jedi and their Padawans and kicks their ass, as you would. But I, I read that they spent two years kind of working on the look of this and their choreography for it. <laughs> what does this Yodorowsky do? <laughs> but hey, it paid off because it's, it's really well done. And one thing I really liked about it is Darth Maul says... Two words in the whole film. Yeah, good. Is, yeah. Is it actually Ray Park? No, it is not. Oh. He was he was too busy showing his dick on Instagram, so. Mmm, solid plan. <laughs> <laughs> there is one I thought was really cool. It's called Batman versus the Terminator from 2014. What? How come that didn't happen in the 90s? <laughs> uh, uh, this was, uh, so uh, Tony Guerrero kind of came up with the idea, and then Mitchell Hammond animated at all this is one of the few that i watched that wasn't live action this is an animated version kind of set 30 years after uh, skynet comes online and a dark knight returns-esque batman is trying to infiltrate cyberdyne and take down the robot overlords and it's all done in animation and it is kick-ass you know i didn't write down how long it was it's probably like I don't know, seven minutes or so. Super cool. Again, this is taking these two franchises and meshing the together for just a fun adventure. Really well done. Mm -hmm. I also watched Spawn the Recall from 2014. Oh, uh, you mean there's a finally a, an on-screen Spawn that doesn't suck? <laughs> I can't say that I love this one. Sure. Well, but I don't really care for Spawn. Uh, I really never have. And despite it going, I don't know, 320 some issues or 350 issues, I don't know, however many goddamn issues there are of Spawn and all the Spawn spinoffs, uh, it's mm -hmm. just never really done anything for me past their first story arc. But this is a seven minute short. It's more of a horror film and it shows off how far CGI has come in being able to translate the ideas of a comic book 
or a fan's idea of what Spawn could be and putting it on screen. Um, the CGI in this looks so much better than the movie that came out in the 90s. Uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's crazy. but that, that's, that's not hard. No, it's not. But it, it's it was interesting and exciting to see kind of what a cape come to life or these like writhing, you know, chains of spawns could be if they really put some money and effort into another spawn film. Again, mm-hmm. I don't really need to see it, but you know, there are worse things. Uh, there is uh okay. I want to get into star Wars Vader episode one shards of the past from 2018. Hmm. If you want a, Okay. Flush the the prequels down the toilet and watch this instead. Done. This is a 13-minute short done by Star Wars Theory and Danny Ramirez. Um, He would go on to work uh, the visual effects for Jupiter's Legacy. Wow. And The Atom Project, which is that Netflix movie with Ryan Reynolds that just came out. Yeah. So initially, this was a 30K production. Um, It then got some... Backing $164,000 from crowdfunding campaign, which ended up being a problem. So prior to the film's release, Star Wars Theory, the conglomerate that uh, kind of makes these Star Wars films, uh, they exchanged emails with Lucasfilm asking for permission to crowdfund the short film and make some revenue from it. Uh, Lucasfilm permitted its creation, but said no crowdfunding or revenue. After its release, uh, the film got a copyright claim placed on it due to the soundtrack, which did use a little bit of John Williams in there. Mm. Yeah. So they tried to unmonetize it as Lucasfilm requested so that it wouldn't generate any ad revenue. And then Star Wars Theory said, it's not about the money. It's the principle. When Lucasfilm comes to us with these rules, but then someone goes in there and manually claims it. To me, it's very vindictive and very rude, which sucks. You know, with these these companies, you know, making billions off these properties and, and they can't make anything from it. But, you know, that, mm-hmm. it's, again, you get into the, you know, who owns these properties and copyright. It, it's, a, it's a bigger thing that I think we're getting into here in a moment. But they, Lucasfilm, after lots of support coming from Newsweek and fans and YouTubers, um, they did take the copyright claim down. And so you can still watch it on YouTube now in its original state. It's pretty damn cool. It's Vader kind of dealing with dealing with his own demons and the Emperor kind of manipulating his mind and trying to see if he is worthy of being his apprentice after he becomes Vader or is he tied to these thoughts of love to Padme or, you know, searching for his kids or anything? Or is he, you know, is he willing to be the proper hardcore participant in the dire empire rule that the emperor needs. Um, it's, it's cool. So unlike the prequels, it has pathos. Yes. Yeah. Uh, who would have thought that that actually means something and, and makes the story good. <laughs> I wanted to get into one that you might, you guys might've seen, especially you skip Punisher dirty laundry from 2012. No, I have not seen that one. Oh, okay. All right. So this is uh, a fan film directed by Phil Janu. Um, it's 10 minutes long and it stars Thomas Jane as the Punisher. Awesome. Yes. Uh, so he said that he wanted to 
make a film. He turned down doing a Punisher sequel and he wanted something grittier and more true to the character. And he saw this opportunity to make this fan film. And he did. Phil Janot has done a lot of work. A lot of, he did the Gridiron Gang with The Rock, you know, Entropy with Stephen Dorff, Heaven's Prisoners with Alec Baldwin, Final Analysis with uh, Richard Gere. You know, lots of movies. So he he was a working director for decades before he made this. And Thomas Jane then got his buddy Ron Perlman to be in it. Oh, awesome. Yeah. And this is essentially what what does the Punisher's day look like when he's just trying to do his laundry? And <laughs> bad things go awry outside. It is extraordinarily violent, quite bloody, but it looks good. And it's it's a it's a fun and enjoyable story. And this was the first foray, big foray of the Adi Shankar bootleg universe. Adi Shankar is a Indian American producer and he founded this media company, Bootleg Universe, in 2012. Essentially what he did is he was able to fund fan films. They've done quite a few. The Punisher Dirty Laundry was the first. He did one called Venom Truth and Journalism, which is kind of like you know, a black and white homage circa Man Bites Dog set in the 80s, but dealing with Eddie Brock and becoming Venom. Hmm. You know, an animated Judge Dredd series, a James Bond series where it's animated and it's kind of like him 30 years after leaving the agency. It's called James Bond Jr. <laughs> uh, there's the end of Pokemon, which is like, it's a dark version of Pokemon. Will they rise up and overthrow their human overlords? <laughs> if only. There's the first against the wall. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, he's done, you know, producing a lot of things. So this is kind of more of his side project that he just loves to do. But I mean, he executive produced Lone Survivor, which isn't necessarily my cup of tea, but he became big for doing The Grey, Machine Gun Preacher, mm. Dread, the Carl Urban film. Which is way better than it has any right yeah, to be. Yeah, which is, which is awesome. So he has a lot of actual producing credits and this bootleg universe, it actually spawned the Castlevania TV show based off really? the Warner Ellis scripts and was picked up by Netflix. The Guardians of Justice Netflix series, a Devil May Cry series that'll be coming out, a Captain Laserhawk series that'll be coming out all on Netflix. He used these fan films and you know made his own fan film production company and then did these, did that Punisher film. He also did one that I watched called Power Slash Rangers from 2015, which starred Dawson's Creek's own Dawson. And <laughs> Katie Sackoff, and it's got Storton Coke, it's got cyborg limbs, it has bare breasts on hookers, bullet ridden bodies of former Power Rangers. It is an adult, super adult Power Rangers take, which a lot of fans really loved. I actually enjoyed it. It was good for what it is. I don't give a shit about the Power Rangers, but they have essentially a black Power Ranger for hire who takes out a Yakuza gang. <laughs> it's like take taking these, what has become like a cultural touchstone for a lot of people and turning it R-rated, taking it a new direction. And I think it works for what it is. It's cool. It's, it's worth a watch. Although that has been taken down. Can't see that on YouTube. Oh. You got to search the back channels a bit for that. They didn't like... Some of the more adult elements that they inserted no. into the mythos. Yeah, surprise, surprise. But I thought that was a really interesting case study and in like what these fan films can produce. 
And one last one I want to touch on is a very popular one, especially with the Batman being so big right now. Batman Dying is Easy, which came out in March of 2022, theoretically, very recently from when you have heard this. And it stars Michael Madsen. It has Doug Jones in it. It's a very well-produced Batman short. A pretty decent Batman and Batman costume, I would say. It's almost half an hour long, um, so it's one of the longer shorts. But, I mean, it's got it's got everybody, essentially, you can think of in it. Killer Croc, Mr. Freeze, the Riddler, the Joker plays a big part, Batgirl, Hugo Strange, Harley Quinn, Poison Ivy, Catwoman. Everybody's having a time in that. But I just want to throw that in there for being, you know, the Batman's a hot property now. And you can <laughs> see a recent Batman version. <laughs> wait, wait. Batman's popular? When did that happen? <laughs> I know. Things have changed quite a bit. There's a few other, I think, that deserve a mention. Like, for instance, if you want to go comedic, check out, if you can find it, check out a Batman short called Robin's Big Date, starring uh, Sam Rockwell and Justin Long, where mm. Robin goes on a, out on a date with a woman, and Batman, the uh, smarmy asshole, crashes it and hits on his date. Oh, uh, yeah, this, this is... My friend Batman. Oh, right. I've heard a lot of. Oh, hello. Heard a lot of things about you. All dark and mysterious. I hope. <laughs> so, Robin, what are you drinking, buddy? Oh, uh, I should get some drinks. What do you say? I'll take a martini, and I think the lady will have a Cosmo. Just tell the bartender it's on my tab. Go ahead. Oh, I do better. You little favorite. Go ahead. Put a move on. Put the gas on. Put the lead on. So, sweetie, you want a little date with the boy Wonder, or as the Penguin said. Quite cleverly, I might add. The boy blunder. It's pretty solid, actually. Especially since they're wearing little kids' Halloween costume versions of their <laughs> uniforms. That's a solid one. I didn't really cover parodies. I didn't do spoofs. I didn't cover fan trailers. There's a lot of, like, episodic fan shorts and shows that I didn't really get into. There's just mm-hmm. so much out there. We could extrapolate it out past films themselves. I mean, fan culture makes everything. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it comes true. The gentleman who does the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air remake show, who's from Lee Summit, Missouri, he posted a trailer for that as a proof of concept, and it proved so popular that it's now officially a show produced by Will Smith. So it can get you places. Yeah, or, or even like the Lego movie. They used old fan films to kind of be a springboard from doing something other than what previous Lego features had done. Going back to kind of more the stop motion roots, you know, using things like there's a very popular and very, very cool father-daughter exercise, I believe, retelling Jurassic Park in like five minutes using Legos that they made a fan film of. And it's really well done. But you can see kind of how they use that and took the way that those actual Lego parts move and put that in the final film. They even like reference popular fan films that had kind of a troubled history with Lego corporate, as it were. Mm, shocker. Yeah. Of anybody who's going to like throw a shit fit about having their toys being used and, and popularized, why are you going to legally go after these people? They're just going out and buying and like, hey, maybe you'd like to make your own fan film with these toys. Here's a, here's an option. Here's something you could do. It's such a stupid, blind capitalist mindset. You know, it's mine. You can't have it or enjoy it. This is a celebration of the thing that you make, then you should be celebrating the celebration, not prosecuting it into the ground. And as litigious as Lucasfilm always has been, around 2002, they did a really interesting thing where after the 
2001 fan film Duality mm-hmm. came out, which was the first big, awesome fan film that I can remember seeing. After that came out, Lucasfilm actually founded a Star Wars fan film awards organization that has an annual ceremony where they recognize fan films, screen them, and vote on the best ones in different categories, like the Oscars. I hope all the award winners get medals, except for any Wookiees. Yeah, yep, yep. Or uh, David Prowse. Nope. I think that's a good approach, especially considering how litigious they are all the time. You can't even use a lightsaber sound without the spirit of George Lucas descending upon your doorstep. There were still companies that had that mindset. If I remember right, there was like a 15-year-old girl that ran a Harry Potter blog that got her pantsuit off because she was using copyrighted materials in fanfics and stuff. And it's like, she's a 15-year-old fan. (laughs) (laughs) What kind of asshole do you have to be? Yeah, I mean, we could have had the Harry Potter Fifty Shades of Gryffindor, you know, from this 15-year-old girl. Don't act like that isn't a thing. Oh, it's 100% a thing. We don't have to prove it. We can just tell you right now. It's guaranteed you it's a thing. This wizard, he only uses his wand, but he keeps his cloak on at all times. They treat their audience like a commodity itself. And the heart of, you know, the creation is just sort of lost. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, there's way too many even just genres of fan film for us to cover. But in broad strokes, it goes back to, I mean, they had ones in the 60s, 70s, 80s before the internet before even bootleg tapes you had fan films being made you know Mm -hmm. speaking of litigious and speaking of the future of (laughs) fan film doom (laughs) uh yes so star trek is uh, the pillar in fan fiction in general fan fiction is how it stayed in the social zeitgeist after it was canceled the second time in uh, 1969 it kept it alive, and it forked off into slash fiction. That's where that comes from. That's a fun thing. And then it kept Star Trek, which was only on for three seasons, in everybody's mind, and boosted people's enthusiasm to the point where it was revived as a series, which then became a movie, and then eventually a second series, and then a whole franchise that's kind of off the rails at this point. But but I definitely think you're franchises that had their time and then weren't on television anymore they needed that fervor to be in the fandom itself to generate more going forward one thing yeah we would be remiss to not mention is well a couple of fan films primarily george lucas in love and Mm -hmm. gene roddenberry in love if you haven't seen those or shakespeare in love give it a shot it's a hoot stars a lot of important people i guess which is one of the weird genres of fan fiction and fan films where it's not necessarily using the cultural characters, mm-hmm. but more like the people around those characters to mm-hmm. make a, a film about them. But yes, that definitely needs to be mentioned. They're using the cultural impact and the cultural zeitgeist as the character and as the plot instead of directly being in that universe, which is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Not only skirting around legal issues, but uh, but also, you know, telling a new story from a fan perspective. So, yeah, those are worth checking out. Since at-home computing and, and digital media and the internet merged into the, the ability to DIY films of quality around 2000, but late, maybe late 90s, you saw this explosion in fan films and an explosion in Star Trek fan films specifically. This is going to be an interesting little rabbit hole 
And by little, I mean crazy. Is there a Star Trek version of a rabbit? Well, there's an episode that they totally reference Alice in Wonderland, where there's a giant white rabbit. Could this be a triple hole that we're going down? It's a triple hole, yes. We're going to go down the Targ hole, <laughs> which sounds really gross if you think about <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, get right into that Targ hole. Uh, it's like following something down a Tauntaun hole. <laughs> I thought it smelled bad on the outside. Tauntaun hole I put there. So in this one, this all kind of comes to a head with a very particular lawsuit that sort of changed the direction of fan films forever. So buckle up, get back to the Wayback Machine, we do a slingshot around the sun, <laughs> all the way back to the year 1990. Rewind. <laughs> it's not even that episode. <laughs> We've now entered our hypersleep chambers and awoken in the amazing future year 1990. Man, 2000's going to be so cool. You think we'll have flying cars by like 2020? Underwater cities. You know, a lot of bubble domes. You know, I just saw a Simpsons episode where they <laughs> it had Trump as president. Can you believe that? Kooky talk. The Royals winning the World Series. So a lot of this information comes not from us, but from a website called AXA Monitor, who gives daily reports on this drama. And they're the ones that break these stories. Yeah, and this is all hearsay from a third party. We, we don't have any, I mean. Now no, we're just reporting on what the hell people are doing online. So that's not. Fair use, fair use, fair use. So a young man named Alec Peters, who was a Star Trek fan, I don't know if you'd qualify me as a Trekkie or a Trekker, which are two different fan camps for those who don't know. So ask your parents if you don't know what it is. Well, tell them. Tell them what it is. Okay. Here, if, if you have to break it down into a sentence. Trekkies are obsessed with detail and minutia and canon, and Trekkers are obsessed with abstracts and concepts. See? So. There you go. That's pretty much it. And you can be both. It's not mutually exclusive, because I'm both. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah. He's a bi-trekker. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's got to be a better one than that. Uh, Star Swinger. That's a horse of a different <laughs> color, man. That's You just described James Kirk. <laughs> You're a binary star? How about that? You're, you're getting warmer. <laughs> okay. So, Young Peters was a an aspiring writer and filmmaker, and he wrote a script for a Star Trek fan film that was inspired by, getting into some deep cuts here, inspired by a tabletop role-playing game, which is non-canon technically, but continued certain Star Trek storylines. Based off of those stories, he wrote a fan story. So we're like two levels down now. Wow, already. yeah, okay. Yeah, about a character named Garth of Izar, who first appeared in the original series episode, Whom Gods Destroy. And it refers to... Wait, did the gods des- destroy Wayne? What? You know, Wayne and Garth. Oh. Yeah, yeah. That, I kept thinking Bruce Wayne. That joke really hit, huh? I'd replicate another one if I were <laughs> And it refers to an event, which is non-canon, called the Battle of Axanar, which depicts the supposed four years war between the Federation and the Klingon Empire. Until Star Trek Discovery, which we will have to get to later, that was just a vague thing referenced and was never actually like put in canon. So this sort of like filled in those gaps, which, you know, that's fair. This was early 90s, so, you know, that's fine. So you wrote this script. Nothing else really happens until about 2010. 
this is when Alec Peters first takes on the role of Garth of Izar in a very popular and very successful Star Trek fan film series called Star Trek New Voyages. Now, Star Trek Two Voyages, and this is an important background, not because this is something really cool to check out, but also it's kind of a sad story as we go along, so we'll keep referring to this. Star Trek New Voyages was created by a huge Star Trek fan named James Cawley, his writing companion Jack Marshall, but James Cawley was a diehard Trekker. He famously built an entire screen-authentic replica of the bridge of the original Enterprise from scratch. And they came up with this idea to create a show that was the fourth and fifth years of Enterprise's five-year mission. At last, we are underway, though I have mixed feelings knowing we are more than halfway through our five-year mission. A lot of original stuff, even though the acting's pretty dodgy for most of it, and uh, it's this little camp in places. The production quality is top-notch, and they raised their own money, they did everything on their own, they debuted in January of 2004. And their first few episodes were <laughs> were filmed in a uh, closed-down car dealership in Port Henry, New York. But it gets better because, moving on up, <laughs> production eventually moved to an abandoned family dollar store <laughs> in Ticonderoga. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, so they had their own studio. Uh, kudos to them. I mean, I guess you can call an abandoned dollar store a studio. <laughs> well, if you film it, it is. I mean, but if I take a shit somewhere, is that automatically a bathroom? For you. <laughs> okay. It's all about your perspective. It's all about your point of view, Luke. That's why he's talking to John Lennon. Very confused. I know. Well, do a better Alec Guinness. I, I dare you. I double dare you. <laughs> I'm not Ewan McGregor. So they had a short run before they got a lot of attention and got some funding and things. And then they changed the name of the series to Star Trek Phase 2. The name of the second Star Trek series that was in production but never released that eventually became Star Trek The Motion Picture. And then eventually, that had a little too much baggage, they thought, so they went back to New Voyages. It was so popular, they actually got famous people to star in it. An important thing moving forward. George Takei came back as Sulu in the episode World Enough in Time. Walter Canning reprised his role of Chekhov in To Serve All My Days. And Eugene Roddenberry, the son of Gene Roddenberry, came on as producer. That's a big deal. Yeah. It's a fan fiction success story. Very, very popular. And in this, Alec Peters first portrays Garth of Izar on screen. And he's got machinations to bring that old script of his to life. Now, in September of 2012, right after his second appearance on Star Trek New Voyages, Peters announced his goal to create a full-length Star Trek fan film called Star Trek Axanar. It would be shot on the New Voyages sets. To get to this goal, he produced a fan film called Prelude to Axanar, a shorter film meant as a proof of concept, a mockumentary starring a lot of famous sci-fi B-movie actors as they tell the tale of the harrowing four-year war with the Klingon Empire. Hmm. This is a galaxy-wide transmission of the United Federation of Planets. The United Federation of Planets Historical Society, in association with Memory Alpha, presents the Four Years' War. So in 2013, Star Trek Axanar pops up on IMDb with the status of 
in pre-production, implying that they were close to actually filming, and it had a scheduled release date of 2014. Now, in 2014, they started a month-long Kickstarter campaign to raise money for Prelude to Axanar. Their goal was $10,000. They received $101,171. That's a big jump. Not bad. (laughs) I'll take that. Then Prelude to Axanar later that year premiered at Comic-Con. In the, that hotel across the street. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we've both been there. Here's some of the feedback from it. Author David Gerald, who wrote Trouble with Tribbles, read the script and stated, this is Star Trek. He loved the concept, and being so personally familiar with Star Trek, he signed on to be a creative consultant. Wow. Yeah. An outlet called the Guardian Liberty Voice wrote, The acting is superb, including appealing performances from Gary Graham as the Vulcan ambassador. Now, Gary Graham, for those of you who don't know, he played Soval, the Vulcan ambassador in Star Trek Enterprise. He was also the Jimmy Kahn character in Alienation, the series, if that helps. Huh. <laughs> All right. If that helps the two of you out there who know what we're talking well, about. help me. It'll help me. Uh, and then Richard Hatch, you know, Battlestar Galactic's Richard Hatch as General Karn and Kate Vernon as Sonia Alexander. Now, Kate Vernon is also a Battlestar Galactic vet. Uh, the Garden Liberty voice went on to say, the prelude to Axanar is of the highest Hollywood style production quality and a must see for any devotee of the franchise. And then an outlet called Entertainment News International stated that Axnar is a groundbreaking independent film that proves the idea that a studio doesn't need to spend millions of dollars to produce a feature quality production. Axnar would be the first non-CBS Paramount produced Star Trek to look and feel like a true Star Trek movie. High praise. Mm -hmm. So, after the success of Prelude, Peters launched a second Kickstarter to fund his full-length Star Trek Axnar film. They raised $638,471. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money for a fan film. So amid this, Peters officially stated, In deference to CBS, we have removed the Star Trek branding from our website and our Facebook page. We are cognizant that we are using CBS's intellectual property, there was a mistake, and we (laughs) wish to minimize the use of that IP in our film and our overall production. So obviously he was feeling the heat. Somebody was breathing down in his neck, and he went out and said, okay, we'll just not call it Star Trek. The problem with that was that in an official statement, he acknowledged he was using CBS's intellectual property. <laughs> not a smart move. Because yeah. most of the time, they'll turn a blind eye. But if you go out and you do that, they're going to have to say something at some point. Mm. <sighs> he does a lot of stupid things, so we're going to get to that. It's going to get weird. In March of that year... Axanar's IMDb production status is upgraded to pre-production, mm-hmm. saying, we shoot in May slash June. So in May, Peters stated that his hand-selected director, Christian Gossett, resigned to take a position on a larger feature film. Under new director Robert Mayer Burnett, they began filming in LA for a three-minute scene, once again, a proof of concept, featuring Gary Graham, all about the Vulcan perspective. Then in July, the scene was officially released. So then he's he's got a lot of money behind him, right? Mm -hmm. So And people are starting to wonder what's happening. In 2014, he released a blog titled Axanar Annual Report, where he outlined 
a $9,000 deficit in producing Prelude to Axanar and outlining how money raised from its second Kickstarter was to be spent. He called Axanar a fully professional production in which full-time employees get salaries. That'll come back later. Hey. Uh-huh. The third crowdfunding campaign, that's not a good sign, oh. has now moved to Indiegogo. Huh. It reached its initial goal of $330,000 just 20 days in. So later that year, Peters is in Las Vegas at the Star Trek Experience, which is now the official big convention. And he meets with CBS officials behind closed doors, hoping that they can come to some sort of understanding. What they said was, we're not authorizing, sanctioning, or licensing this project in any way. And then... CBS went on to issue a formal statement describing Axonar as a professional commercial venture trading off of our property rights. Apparently, that meeting didn't go well, because they didn't seem like they wanted to say anything until he opened his mouth. So, in August of that year, the Indiegogo campaign shutters raising over $470,000. The next day, Indiegogo moves Axonar into its in-demand category which means it can still raise funds even though the campaign is over. They raised their goal to $1.3 million. Wait, from 300000 to $1.3? Yeah. People are starting to raise eyebrows like we all are, like Vulcans everywhere. So after that meeting in Las Vegas, the outlet The Wrap asked a question in one of its articles about Axnar. Its seven-figure bankroll raises questions just how fan the project is, and at what point it poses a threat to the authorized franchise. Then CBS releases this statement. CBS has not authorized, sanctioned, or licensed this product project <laughs> in any way, and this has been communicated to those involved. We already told you. We continue to object to professional commercial ventures trading off of our property rights and are considering further options to protect these rights. Not a good sign. So in September, one of the big gets for the cast of full-length Axanar, Tony Todd, which is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Candyman and Kern, and he's great. He announces he's leaving the project. Not a good sign. Mm. Something's up. So at the end of the year, they release to donors a revised version of their annual report outlining spending through July 31st, 2015 from its two Kickstarter campaigns, not its Indiegogo one. People had a lot of questions about inconsistencies with spending, as documented in the report. Two weeks later, Paramount and CBS file copyright lawsuits. I saw that coming. Yeah. Every time they do something public, Paramount and CBS is like, well, f man, I, I told you to shut your damn mouth. You know? <laughs> Keep my franchise out your damn mouth. God. That Indiegogo campaign is still going. And in 2016, approximately $200,000 of the funding that happened in that campaign, it came out later, happened in the final two days, directly after George Takei publicly announced that he was interested in the production. So they officially land Richard Hatch and J.G. Hertzler, who was um, Martok in Deep Space Nine, hmm. and of course, Gary Graham and Kate Vernon. Because of the lawsuit... Indiegogo shuts down the campaign. It only makes 574434 of the $1.32 million they said they needed. In the meantime, Axonar continues taking donations directly from its website. So they just said, f*** them, we're doing it live. 
So then in January of 2016, Peters announced that he would no longer play Captain Garth in the uh, movie, stating that he wanted to hire a professional actor and he could focus more on writing and producing. So there's a lot of questions going on about donors, about money, about progress of production, why people are quitting left and right. On the night before Peters officially responds to the lawsuit, Axenar shutters its Facebook groups to the public. It deletes threads that criticize them, so pulls a full Trump. Wild. Yeah, we're, we're getting into some Theranos territory here. <laughs> I don't like where this is going. No, I don't, I don't either, and it gets worse. Although the so, USS Theranos, I can I could see being a... <laughs> Oh, man, I want to see the trials and tribulations of the USS Theranos. <laughs> they were having some serious money problems, uh, but still hadn't produced much of anything. Sound a little like a certain Scott Mitchell? Uh, it's ringing true. Mm-hmm. This is where we're going with it. Mm. <laughs> out of nowhere, after kicking out a bunch of donors, it deems unsupportive. They announced that a private investment group planned to buy his now named Ares Studios, but with hundreds of thousands of dollars in donor funds. That private investment group turned out to be OWC, uh, Otherworld Computing. They make a lot of um, car drives and computer parts. They're legitimate, but for some reason, they bought the assets and then renamed it OWC Studios. Very Theranos-like, too. Yeah. Uh, Huh. Yeah, we're, yeah, all these people are like, oh, no, it can't be a scam. And <laughs> I never saw Music Man, huh? Uh, in <laughs> May, at an event for 50th anniversary of Star Trek and specifically the uh, premiere of Star Trek Beyond, J.J. Abrams announced that Beyond's director, Justin Lin, of the Fast and Furious franchise, had gone to Paramount on the Axnar Productions' behalf and tried to do a Jimmy Carter and bring peace to the Middle East. And then Paramount confirmed that it would work toward a settlement. J.J. Abrams publicly stated that, quote, this whole thing is going to go away. That was not apparently accurate. <laughs> so then, because they're stupid, Peters and the Axenar Group filed a response to the legal complaint, including a counterclaim seeking a judgment against copyright infringement, attorney's fees, and other unspecified relief. Basically, they wanted to be exonerated, tell them they were sorry for prosecuting them, pay their lawyer fees, and then punitive damages, essentially. Yeah, I'd like that too. Yeah, wouldn't we all? I'm just, yeah. Mark I'm me sure. down for a yes, please. I'm sure OJ did too, you know? <laughs> okay, here's another bonehead move. By counterclaiming, legally, it prevented the plaintiffs from being able to drop the suit. Because now they have to litigate, and by litigating this counterclaim, they have to maintain the suit. They would have let it go if he had just shut the f*** up. <laughs> God, what is he, Richard Nixon? Just shut the f*** up. Why are you recording yourself? <laughs> you know, I, I, I hate those Klingons. <laughs> so CBS and Paramount, because of this whole fallout and during the counterclaim, they are in the middle of negotiating guidelines for fan films. And these guidelines would go on to define basically everybody else's guidelines and now determine how fan films can be produced from here to eternity. Then it came out that Peters had, <laughs> behind everyone's back, reached out to at least nine different fan productions to try and get them on his side and produce an alternative proposal for fan guidelines. Every single one of them is like, dude, we were doing fine until you opened your goddamn mouth. <laughs> 
And now you want us to go to bat for you for rules that you made up, which we wouldn't have had to have if you just shut the f*** up. And so he wanted rules that were like, there's a time limit on running time and uh, you can't use Kickstarter and Indiegogo, but you can... But you could, you know, get it through other means, and you could pay professional cast and crew, like a regular production. And of course, why would anybody go for that? One of the people he reached out to was James Cawley, who did Star Trek New Voyages. And he, after he let them use the sets he built and his studio and got no result from any of it, he goes to Cawley and is like, hey, back me up on this. And then Cawley's like, this is a quote from his social media. And now, like clockwork, Alec is texting and trying to make nice, so we all join him in creating guidelines to give to CBS. I politely decline and received several insults. Sigh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's just getting worse and worse behind the scenes. Very Elizabeth Holmes. Now, in June, a BuzzFeed article focusing on Axanar's role in Star Trek fandom, uh, they release the first of three teaser trailers for Axanar. In August. All right. What what year is this? Oh, I'm sorry. This is 2016. So how long has this been going on? This has been going. Uh, well, he, he they started pre production in 2010. Okay. All right. Yeah. They really started earnest production in 2014. So we're we're two years in, and we've got a short film and a bunch of teaser trailers essentially. And we still haven't gotten to the movie he's trying to make supposedly. In August, one of the biggest selling points that they always pushed. And they, I mean, Peters and Robert Meyer Burnett, who's his new handpicked director, you know, bragged that Prelude to Axanar was the most successful Star Trek fan film ever. Unfortunately, and I'm sure because of all the other bullshit around it, they are then immediately surpassed by another Star Trek fan film called Star Trek Horizon, uh, <laughs> which is now the most popular Star Trek fan film of all time. And then so immediately, Alec Peters goes online and starts screaming about how the production must be buying YouTube views. Getting real Trump vibes here. <laughs> this sounds like DC fans are angry that Marvel's getting popular reviews, you know, so they're like, oh, well, obviously Disney's just buying those papers and these reporters are just chills for the company. Mm -hmm. It couldn't be yeah. that, that their films are cool and yours suck, but... Yeah, it couldn't be that. No, that's not possible. They're going to have to hire cyber ninjas to go in and audit all this. <laughs> so in 2017, Paramount CBS officially reached an agreement with Peters specifically, allowing him to produce a half-hour film. As per the agreement, he had to admit overstepping his rights in in using Star Trek copyrighted material. And he agreed that he wouldn't seek public funding anymore. Hmm. So then... This is so weirdly a lot like QAnon in the, in the election and everything. It's so weird. So then right after that, right after this is announced, Star Trek Discovery premieres. Now, Star Trek Discovery, for those of you who don't know, its first season covers the exact topic that Axanar is about. <laughs> huh. Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah, fascinating. Right? That's, that's interesting, isn't it? Who's the bad guy here? I don't really know. <laughs> So he agreed to make a 30-minute you know, Axanar film that he referred to as Axanar Light. And just days before it was set to start filming, Paramount lawyers claimed that Peters had violated the terms of the settlement, mostly because of the countersuits that they kept filing after they agreed to it. <sighs> you just keep shooting yourself in the foot with a phaser, my friend. It's so stupid. 
stupid. Yeah, so basically he just went online and started whining, complaining about Discovery and how they were being ripped off. So he starts talking about all this and they start asking questions because he says that he made no profit off of any of this stuff. And that it's, all, it's cost him money, essentially. But then people start asking, like, that's weird because um, you spent nearly a million dollars to build a studio and sell merchandise for a movie that doesn't exist yet. And, and then he was like, no, 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 no. He said, quote, when I die on my tombstone, it's going to be creator of Axanar. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't think you'd be proud of that one at this point. Um, and so there's a new lawsuit. In it, a federal judge found that Peters had indeed profited off of Axanar, which is in complete violation of the agreement they came to. Quote, Peter's substantial involvement in, such as writing script for, the Axanar works materially contributes to the infringing conduct of Axanar Productions. As to vicarious infringement, Peters, as president of Axanar Productions, was in charge of and responsible for its conducts. He was responsible for many of the artistic decisions. He supervised and controlled Axanar Productions. Peters profited directly from Axanar Works. Hmm. Okay. So, then... He starts going on rants against Brian Fuller because Brian Fuller had pitched and successfully landed Star Trek Discovery. He started claiming that Brian Fuller was a huge fan of Axanar and had, you know, like propped him up and, and told him to fight the good fight, which was never true. And then in 2016, Brian Fuller was asked whether or not Discovery was based in any way on the history of Axanar. And he said, quote, I actually don't know what the history of Axanar is. <laughs> yeah, so he's trying to make Axanar light. Apparently, it's kind of a mess. So then in November 2017, his handpicked director and biggest proponent resigned from the project. He just threw his hands up and was like, I'm done. <laughs> and it turns out that the 30-minute narrative idea that they had agreed to legally, Peters had no intention of following. And that's one of the reasons he was like out. He goes, Peter says... We need to do what the fans want. And he claims that he decided to do what he did because of a poll he saw online. We need to do what the fans want, Peter said about the poll's results in favoring continuation of the Four Years War documentary. So now they've pivoted to going back to what worked before. But the problem was that he hadn't actually seen that poll because it hadn't been posted until a week after Burnett resigned. He never planned on doing what he was supposed to the entire time. At least not surprising. No, it's not at all, is it? So then he does massive rewrites and is trying to do reshoots. And he tries to hire a new director. <laughs> there was this big controversy because they were bought by OWC Studios. And Peters had proposed a three to four day shooting schedule split between a, some studio in Los Angeles and some place in Atlanta. <laughs> Even though the Axanar sets were stored cheap warehouse of Peters in Georgia. And then later, he admitted that the warehouse may not even be used to produce the episode, the ones that were specifically designed to do that and were promised that as part of the agreement of being bought by other world computing. He says, we're trying to split between here in Georgia or a friend's studio that has a big green screen and L.A. where a lot of actors and makeup guy are. Uh, that's, I think he meant plural there because there's more than one of those. <laughs> no, there. there is makeup guy. <laughs> No, his name, is, his name is Makeup Guy. <laughs> he says, we're not sure how that's split up between L.A. and Atlanta. It came out that 
They had covered quotes from his official spokesman when he said, the last time I spoke to Alec, we had discussed plans for shooting in Georgia and nothing was said about shooting in California. At this point, they have no cast, no director, no crew, and no money. So they blew all that money they had and aren't producing anything. And now he claims he needs an extra $200,000. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. So is this what happens when fan films become a scam? Yeah, essentially. And that's the sad part. Officially, CBS and Paramount issue blanket universal guidelines based on this bad exchange. And they're considered kind of draconian in a lot of ways. And they, they change the way fan films are made. But the sad part is they would have just kept turning a blind eye if he hadn't gone out of his way to do all of this. Peter said that the CBS vice president, Bill Burke, told him in 2013, it would take the CEO of CBS and the CEO of Paramount sitting in a room and doing nothing but talk about fan films in order for us to produce guidelines. So he's claiming that they told him they would never come up with guidelines. And then, of course, they immediately came up with guidelines. It was only because of the the lawsuit that they even sat down to talk about it. So, of course, he's still ranting about other fan productions. He, He says that all the bad press comes from Axanar haters. It comes from jealousy, he says. He's like, ah, they don't like the story or whatever. Nobody knew the stories. It got leaked, like, long after the settlement was settled. So that doesn't really matter at all. It really did not look good in any way, shape, or form, apparently. But he's still claiming that he's going to make it. So these fan film rules are very, very strict. And in 2018, a group of British fan filmmakers produced a 51-minute-long fan film called Temporal Anomaly, where they had actually approached CBS for approval for that length of time. They reached an agreement, and because they went to them, they asked nicely, and then they were like, yeah, sure, that's fine. (laughs) It just proved that all they had to do was not be total dickheads, and they would have been like, sure, that sounds fine. Of course, Peters hates this. He's really, really upset because he thinks that everybody's out to get him. But then that brings up all these things about are the guidelines too strict? And then in a surprise move, they actually loosen up the guidelines for everybody because this whole project was at least like civil. Well, they didn't have to go through a whole lawsuit. (laughs) You guys can do what you want as long as you don't do these, you know, handful of things. Of course, this whole time, Peters is doing these crazy live blogs or Basically, like, anytime anybody asks him about it, even just in earnest, he goes off on them online, he blocks people on Facebook, he calls people out publicly. When members of the Axanar fan group on Facebook started asking questions about the lawsuit and the project's accountability, they shuttered all of the Facebook groups. And Peters told one of the people who actually donated money, quote, it was brought to my attention that you've posted in one of the other groups in a negative fashion on one occasion, I'm the one that clicked the ban button when you reapplied today, though, because you're on the member list of several anti-Axonar groups, including their <laughs> secret one that apparently there's a mole in. Oh, Christ. Dude, seriously. <laughs> it kind of feels like uh, Island of Dr. Moreau production. <laughs> Here's a, sort of an analysis by uh, a copyright expert from Nova Southeastern University. If you need further proof of the true intentions of these so-called fair use and free speech crusaders, it's that persons who are critical of Axanar's ethics and legal positions have their posts on Axanar's Facebook page deleted and their ability to post on Axanar page revoked. Hmm. (laughs) Here's a podcaster who asked just for some clarification on the subject. He says, quote, 
So, Alec Peters, can you please tell me why I have not only been kicked out from the now-closed Axonar fan group, but upon submitting a new join request have been blocked completely, a group that, in its own descriptions, states is for all fans, supporters, and donors? What is it that you and the other group admins are actually now hiding behind closed doors, and that you're actively kicking out fans, supporters, and donors? Eventually, they fought their way back into the group, and a person named Terry McIntosh said, If you'd approached me privately and we discussed this as adults, then we surely could have hashed it out. I'm not saying that can't still happen, but your stock dropped a bit with the public butthurt. So the question is, do you wish to participate in the group? Also, my new band is going to be called Public Butthurt. It's like a punk band, yeah. In reaction, it goes, so the question is, do you wish to participate in the Axnar group? If so, I'm cool with that, but, and this is a big asterisk, if it comes to our attention that you're lobbing a turd in our direction, then you'll be dumped like toxic waste. Yeah. So this is just a crazy mess. But the whole time, they claim they're making this movie. So then <laughs> there was a con. Yeah. Now this is a long con. But yeah. <laughs> definitely was a long con. So there's this science fiction convention in Atlanta at the airport, which sounds terrible. Oh, God. Yeah. Called SphinxCon. They said that they would provide space for Axonar to have their own representation there. And Axonar went on to say that they're putting on a con within a con, Axicon, <laughs> trying to one-up the only people that took them in. God. Yeah. So SphinxCon had a certain, obviously, a set price for stuff. What the Axonar people did was they demanded that if you bought tickets and it planned on even looking in our direction, you have to pay an extra 150 bucks. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. And so SphinxCon had to be like, hey, hey, whoa, we didn't say they could do that. So that was just in that month. So they couldn't do any public fundraising anymore. Peters sought private sources after spending $1.7 million raised now without ever producing anything. When members of the Axonar fan group that hadn't been purged responded to a poll asking if they would be willing to pay a subscription fee to be part of the Facebook group. Oh, my Lord. They all put up a middle finger and took off. (laughs) Uh, So the poll was taken down before it was even expired. And, of course, it was all the legal stuff they were still fighting and everything. Uh, After more than a year and a half of OWC owning their production studio, none of the productions had ever materialized, and complaints to the company about, quote, vitriolic public rants by Peters (laughs) had started to make them uncomfortable. After one particular incident, an OWC spokesperson, an Omni Consumer Products spokesperson, (laughs) stated, we are not pleased with what Alec Peters and others posted on his Facebook page. We immediately contacted Mr. Peters and expressed our concerns and requested that he remove his reference to OWC Studios. Hmm. Please note that we've also responded to comments and messages that we at OWC do not condone threatening behavior in any capacity and do not want our name associated. This just keeps getting worse and worse. (sighs) And so in 2018, they just said, nope, we're done. Even though they own the assets, we're walking away. So now he doesn't even have that. Now he starts a Patreon. Brilliant, because you can't crowdfund, so that's a good idea. He describes his pitch on Patreon as Ares Studios again. The, quote, first fan-owned film studio, which means please give me money. But the thing is, he's asking for money for the studio in Georgia. But the only things he's shooting are in California. And he's using the money for the Georgia studio for his studio in California, which is basically shot in the parking lot. He's asking for $4,000 a month. Uh, No, not doing that. 
it gets even more locked down in details. OWC was caught up in legal stuff where he was listing assets in real estate and it wasn't true and he was lying about stuff, but we don't need to get in all that. The weird thing is that he did get some money from Patreon, but it was very clear that after they realized nothing was actually going to get produced, th- that all just kind of dried up. So then his public relations director. Why does he have a public relations director? He's a filmmaker who doesn't make films. He doesn't even produce the fan films that he's supposed to make. So Robert Mayer Burnett, the second t- director to leave, got into a public tiff with Peters. And this caused Mike Bodden, PR guy, to resign after five years of this garbage. He said, I told Alec at the end of last year and sent him an official resignation email as of December 31st, 2018, I'm not tied to these productions in any way. So that all came when the director took to YouTube to claim that Peters had gone on a, a campaign to ruin his reputation and destroy his career. Peters publicly alleged Burnett had stolen Axenar property and owed him $30,000 that he had spent buying Burnett a new car and paying his rent. What? Bodden tried to get in the middle of it, and he literally said, cut out the drama. Alec Peters said, I'm going to end this in court and then let everyone know this lying thief screwed us all. (laughs) This is really sad. Alec Peters goes on this rant about it where he calls him a dead man walking, a worthless waste of skin, (laughs) the winner of a one-way trip to the airlock of your life. That was pretty good, actually. Uh, I could get that on a shirt. That would be fine. That's gold. That is a burn. (laughs) Uh, And so that's when Mike Bowden goes online, says, I'm not pleased with the way either side is handling this. Both sides need to get over themselves. Don't go there. I'm begging you. (laughs) In all honesty, I think this advice, like so much that I've given both of you, will go unheeded. So Peter's got another PR advisor who then went online to say, using a public forum to vent these frustrations only plays into the hands of those who want to ridicule you and Axenar. So then all that stuff gets deleted. So then there's a lot of people who are actually like starting to break down whether or not the non-arrival of the product, but all the money raised is actually fraud. It turns out that's one of the reasons OWC bailed out. They thought this might eventually end up a fraud case. Then a bunch of other weird happened. Apparently at one point, and I'm guessing this is in a desperate attempt to raise money, there was a, a company called Kiroprop LLP who bought the actual 10-foot model of, of the Enterprise E from Star Trek First Contact for something like $500,000. Alec Peters immediately files a lawsuit. He claims that he's owed $200,000 of that because he claims that he arranged the sale because he knew the guy that owned it and deserved a finder's fee. So he files this lawsuit. And in the countersuit, Hero Prop, specifically the head person, Tiana Armstrong, said, quote, Peters was in no position to arrange a sale. Had Peters truthfully represented that he had a poor relationship with the owner, plaintiffs would have never sought Peters' assistance in acquiring the Enterprise E. So he was like, hey, you should go buy this because I know that guy, which he didn't really. And they were like, I guess, well, if you know him, I guess we can get a good deal. They didn't even really want to buy it. The guy that owned it didn't want to sell it, but he put them together. Eventually, the deal happened, and then he goes, well, that'll be $200,000, please. And so in the countersuit, the complaint states that Peters represented that he'd communicated with the owner, though it turned out later that he had never contacted the owner. In fact, he asked his former business partner at PropWorks to reach out and partner the deal. 
But Peters and the props work guy, Jared Hunt, had parted ways in 2017. He did reach out to see if he wanted to sell. And the owner told him that, quote, he did not want to sell the Enterprise-E and ask if Peters was involved. The owner told Hunt that the owner would not do any transaction involving Peters. But somehow he thinks he's owed $200,000. In rebuttal, Peters told Armstrong that the owner was, quote, being an asshole. <laughs> Jared Hunt believed effort to acquire the Enterprise-E from the owner was dead. But then Armstrong was like, F*** it, let's buy it, and up the uh, bid. And then, without Peters' involvement, agreed on buying not just that, but the original studio model of Deep Space Nine, which is pretty cool. And so in the suit, according to the suit, Peters learned of the sale in June of 2018 and claimed Armstrong owed him his commission. Quote, when Peters reported in November 2017 that the owner did not want to sell his collection, that was in fact merely the first step in the negotiation. Peters claimed he had done his job and was entitled to be compensated on the completed deal. He also argued he was the, quote, seller's agent, despite the fact Peters had no contractual or oral agreement with the owner, no communications with the owner, and Peters claimed that the owner was not even supposed to know about his involvement in the transaction. So, we're best friends, and I can totally broker this, but don't ask him about it. <sighs> uh, Peters then goes on to threaten Armstrong in an email saying, you don't want to be dragged through the mud and have your business ruined. We threatening her. <laughs> and yet he's asking for $200,000. And then $165,000 in damages, court costs, attorney's fees, and a punitive damages. Uh, and then he goes on to claim that Armstrong was trafficking stolen goods, saying it... Quote, upon information and belief, Mr. Peters discovered that Mrs. Armstrong had sold multiple stolen objects and obtained commissions therefrom, including but not limited to objects from Marvel Studios and Warner Brothers. Once Miss Armstrong became aware of Mr. Peters' knowledge of her previous sales, she attempted to exclude him from all pending transactions. So what she's saying is that she didn't want to work with him because he found out she was a thief. Uh, this is so Trump. I mean, this is like straight up the Trump playbook. And of course, then it comes out that PropWorks, the company that one of the reasons it kind of failed, because it, it had declared bankruptcy during his tenure, basically, he had been buying props on the company dime, and then immediately filed for bankruptcy because he couldn't pay for it, which left its parent company, MGM Studios, holding the bag for $300,000 worth of props that he had bought. <sighs> and this whole time, he's just ranting online. It's just this nonstop but instead of doing it on Twitter, he does it all on Facebook, like a real boomer <laughs> asshole. So then he gets in trouble for these posts. He gets sued for posting these things, calling the post negligent, quote, false and damaging statements, harming the plaintiff's reputation in the movie memorabilia community, citing Peter's threats. You don't want to be dragged through the mud, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so, and that wasn't the first time he had been involved in the defamation suit. <laughs> He basically did the same thing to a different person from a different company. And then, yeah, he owed. So he gets countersued for that, stating that he owes in excess of $15,000 in damages from his Facebook posts, which, yikes. I wish they'd enforce that more. That he's entitled to a portion of the profits for the Enterprise E sale. Plaintiffs are not liable for damages, damages from claims alleged by Peters. Basically, they just keep going back and forth because he won't shut the f*** up. And so... This goes on to all this goes on to about 2020. 2020, this is still happening. That defamation suit was scheduled for January of 2020. Uh, I don't know that that happened because of the pandemic, so hard to pin down. He had all these other cons where he'd raised all this money to create a Star Trek museum of props. 
but never like materialized, but he kept all the money. He just keeps filing lawsuit after lawsuit. Well, this guy just sounds like he's just doing the same MO again and again. That's all it is. So basically, this all keeps going until I think the latest, all these new people come in that he's filing lawsuits against. A lot of them are just like vloggers. Keeps, it just keeps going. And, and he still claims he's making this movie. So yeah, he tried to create this Star Trek museum in Canada. But then it it went under, and um, oh, wait, I just got this message from him. He says he's he's gonna sell me this space bridge, huh. <laughs> beachfront Should property in Arizona. Click on that. Yeah, and so he keeps setting these dates for premieres of the movie, and it doesn't happen because it's not made. <laughs> so his Patreon goals keep failing. He gets kicked out of his warehouse, and then it turns out that all those props and costumes and stuff that he had in that museum he didn't actually own and he claimed that since they weren't actually his he wasn't liable for any default on the personal loan Uh, (laughs) oh come on man it was a thirty thousand dollar loan so when he was making the axonar thing he had hired a former visual effects artist gary hutzel he had bought the enterprise model from that guy who had created it for the original series for ninety four thousand dollars but never actually gave him the money I'm not letting it out of my hands unless I have the money. I don't... Well, he had died, and his wife put it up for sale. So Peters bought it and never paid for it. Wow. Just when you think you can't get any worse. Just when you think, right? We're at the bottom of that triple hole. It just keeps going. And so now they get into actual fraud. (laughs) Now there's actual fraud allegations, and he's getting caught for breaching the the original settlement. Uh, CBS has to keep issuing statements about it. And a lot of these confidential things are now put public because he keeps doing all this crazy stuff. He, quote, made a number of verbal and other misrepresentations regarding the CBS settlement. He's basically being sued by everyone he ever worked with. Yeah, he was selling merchandise. One of the big things that happened was all of these people that were working with him, they were paid cast and crew, right? But... To try and try to counterclaim a lawsuit against him for violating the agreement that said he couldn't do that, he claimed now that no one on the production team will be compensated for any services in connection with making the film, so that he doesn't have to be in violation of the agreement, which means that he is not going to pay tens of thousands of dollars for paid cast and crew, costumes, equipment, etc. Uh, yeah. And secretly, he had been getting money through personal loans from his former director, Burnett, which he didn't pay back either. Huh. So he tried to produce a documentary about how all this went down. And everyone was like, nope, (laughs) that's not happening. CBS put the smack down and did a bunch of cease and desist stuff. Basically, he can't use anything. So it's all pretty much stalled. He was found guilty of copyright infringement. There's no movie. He still claims it's being made, but there's no legal recourse in the world that would let him do it. But he still claims it's happening. I didn't even mention the fact that Peters was at a convention and somebody came up and asked him about the movie and he physically assaulted the guy. And then Peters went and filed for a protective order against the guy he beat up. Oh, man, it's really... (sighs) I know. So this is just a worst-case scenario of the way that the interaction between fans of IP and these giant companies work. It was a gray area, and a lot of times these companies were just turning a blind eye and letting it happen. 
it could have been all in good fun, but a narcissistic asshole like this has to come and ruin it for everybody. So now there are rules. One bad apple. That's all it took. But um, Paramount, because they worked with other people, like I said earlier, who had had pleasant experiences with, they actually, they sort of like signed off on all of the other fan film projects to a certain extent, like Star Trek New Voyages. To the extent in which CPS Paramount had actually approached New Voyages' Kali to produce a short web series based on Flash Gordon. Mm. I think it was derailed by the pandemic. And Paramount created a thing called Trek Tours, where you can go around and visit locations Star Trek was shot at or that were important to the history of Star Trek. And they include the warehouse and the old family dollar building that the New, new Voyages <laughs> was, was shot in. And so the fact that they were willing to, even after all that, go back and sort of work together with these people, I think is a positive sign going forward. That was an extreme case. and The whole thing could have come toppling down. I don't know where it's going to go, but that's where it is as of now. <laughs> and that is a lot like Pokemon fan films. <laughs> just make a Star Trek fan film. That's all we wanted. <laughs> what a guy. We just wanted to entertain the nice people. <laughs> Not enough deal with this axe in our hole. So yeah, that's uh, that's that. The relationship between those companies and fan films is continuing to be vised and looked at. Uh, and this was a big setback, but it seems more now that these companies are willing to come to the table and embrace the love, even though they're still trying to squeeze as much blood from that stone as they can. It seems like they're at least not, they seem to have learned not to punish their own fans for liking them. That's what HBO did for people who were pirating Game of Thrones. They were like, yeah, that's fine. Whatever. We make money off the merchandise. Who cares? You know? Yeah, it's definitely a change from the way they used to approach things. Oh, yeah. I'm sure it's still like that in a lot of venues, but... Yeah, it's much more a marriage of, not necessarily convenience, but of mutual benefit, I think. And yeah, I think you're right. Hopefully, there's something to grow from that. Hopefully. And people aren't going to stop making fan films anytime soon, so... Nope, just more coming out all the time, which is great for everybody, really. It really is. A warm hug and embrace is really what everybody needs right now. <laughs> Here, here. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that. <laughs> that is that. We could probably follow up on more fanfiction stuff later because there's a lot more to cover, but that was just a not brief overlook of, <laughs> of fan films. Yes, seven minutes it's not. <laughs> so, yes, uh, please, everyone, please like, subscribe, share, leave us the five fan film review on the, the pod stuffs, and, uh, you know, hit us up. On Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Spaceland. Friendster. Friendster, yeah. MySpace. Grinder. <laughs> I want to know what our Grinder account looks like. Uh, you can check out our OKQ. Okay <laughs> Plenty of fish. We're on there. We're on <laughs> Farmers <laughs> Only. <laughs> We're on Christian Singles. Uh, and ironically, JDate. <laughs> We're on Q Love. <laughs> oh, you can check us out on the Donald. <laughs> Truth Social and Kekistruth.com. We're there. The Substack. We're big on 8coon. Uh, Jamatrialive.now. Um. <laughs> uh It's the worst Peter Frampton album of all time. <laughs> do you count like I count? No, no, I do not. <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> Check out our Roku channel. Yeah, that's not that's not hard to do, actually. But we don't even have a YouTube channel. So that's <laughs> yeah, not really yeah uh, you know, baby steps. So Baby steps to the elevator. 
do all of those things. Don't forget to support your local comic shops and retailers. And from Dispatch HX, we would like to say, Godspeed, fair wizards. Yes. Superman? Hello. Are you Mary Jane Watson? Uh, no, uh, no, but she is. Sorry, I don't mean to be rude. I was told you might be able to help me find Spider-Man. I really need his help. Well, I could help you. For a small price. I really don't have any time to waste. Then get your little red button sign. Mm. No matter where you go, 